This is the podcast between an old school mentor and a digital mentee on managing and or working with people, navigating a career, growing profits, and not killing your coworkers along the way. Now let's join the consultant, Hayden Shaw, and the millennial who fixes Hayden's iPhone, Seth Tower Heard. Hey, my name is Seth Tower Heard. He's Hayden Shaw. Together, we are a little thing called the consultant and the millennial. Uh, Hayden uh, is a brilliant dude who has helped over 30,000 managers uh, with their people and process issues, the whole bunch of companies you've heard of and a lot of mom and pop shops and nonprofits along the way. Uh, and I am a guy who saw him speak probably close to 10 years ago at this point and uh, eventually sort of wound my way into his life and talked to him to doing a podcast. I run a company called Digital Profit Farm. We do websites, ads, social media, SEO, and actually podcasting just like this one you're here to get more people to your website and buying stuff. You can find out more at digitalprofitfarm.com. All right. So this is about the time when the gyms have cleared out. Uh, and, uh, and that, you know, the, that, that frantic, I got to work out New Year's Day and try to burn off all the holiday cookies is over. And so, you know, where you're at personally with that is between you and you, I guess. But as organizations as companies we often wind up i was there yesterday and we're in my gym it's not till the first week of february that those people uh, <laughs> are really gone it was still i still i still couldn't get a machine at 3 30 in the afternoon one times one oh, oh oh okay so they they hang on i thought you were saying they started in february like they're getting yeah, no, no, they, for some reason ours goes from like december 10th when the college students are back until um beginning of february till it clears out Okay, so uh, we're going to do this ep this episode two different ways. One way is, hey, I you know I work for a company that we just want to do better. So this is you know I can run a five k and I'd like to increase my you know my cardio, my lifting abilities. I'd just like to be a little more fit. The other one is I'm rolling in you know uh, with a two pack a day smoking habit, and I live exclusively off of food that comes out of a sack. Uh, and I consume way too much alcohol and yet I'm going to try to start working out. So this would be the change management component of, uh, what a company looks like. And this is, first of all, it's not easy. I think it's not easy to admit that your company could be in this situation. Just like it's not easy to admit that you got to quit smoking, you got to quit drinking, you got to quit eating food that comes through your driver's side window. Right. Uh, but in these situations, you eventually work to a place where you're not a couple of pounds over, you know, overweight. You're not just having a little bit of trouble breathing. You are in a situation where if you don't get some stuff changed, you're going to be, you know, <laughs> you as a company are seriously going to be in trouble. And that's uh, where we're going to dive in right here. So Hayden, with as many companies as you worked for, I would say that when I've seen this and I've, I would say successfully lived through a very risky time. We didn't know if the company was going to be okay. And through another company, I unsuccessfully didn't live through it and got laid off. And you know, the company drastically reduced in size. Yeah. It seems like whenever companies get in trouble, they are the last ones to admit it. Like everybody else who's paying attention is like, Oh, those guys are not doing well. And they think, yeah, it'll, it'll course correct. This is just life. Like there's something about the human instinct that just says like, it'll get better without me doing anything. Would you agree with that? I think you said it really well. Um, there's been a bunch of research on people in health and diet, as you know. And one of the most startling, I think, pieces of that is when you look at people who have had open heart surgery and that changed their lifestyle. I mean, open heart surgery is a fairly big 
howdy do, right? When the Grim Reaper gets close enough with you with this scythe that he um, um, nicks your chest and you have to cough into a pillow. <laughs> um, if there's a, wow, you got to do something differently, that'd probably be it. And yet only 7.2% of people change and sustain that behavior change for more than six months. So two wow. years later, um, less than 10% of people have a lifestyle change. Dang. Well, I, and how many of you, and how many, how many of you listening have seen people outside a hotel um, smoking on oxygen? <laughs> so they got their oxygen tank and they're standing outside with a cig. And so it just illustrates how hard it is for people to make changes, even when they've had those kind of, this isn't working and it's not going to get better. Yeah. So if you're in that position where, you know, sales are down or whatever key metric for you is, you know, uh, if you're nonprofit donations, uh, or it could just be that, you know, the money's not there yet, but there's another big thing. Like people aren't opening your emails. Your foot traffic is not where it used to be. Something's going on. Uh, where do we begin to at least be honest about ourselves with that? And I'm going to be paranoid. And as you answer that question, I'm going to just check one more time to make sure our audio is good, man. So you talk. Well, Andy Grove once wrote a book called The Paranoid Survive. And I think that applies to podcasts too. The paranoid gets sound. And Seth um, um, and I have recorded whole podcasts where the sound wasn't working. And so it's always good to double check. The It's really hard to tell. Is it a blip or is this a new reality? And is this, a, is this you know, um, to, use, uh, to use traveling or even jet skis, have I just caught a wave and we need to rebalance this and it's going to balance itself out? Um, do, I, do we need to readjust? Or is this, wow, we have to pivot and do something significantly different? Yeah. And so – we all tend to wait too long because we've all had times when things dip and we're kind of just waiting it out. Ah, oh, you know what? This is a dip. We've been through a recession before. We've seen business dip before. And it takes a while to say, is this a dip or is this signs of things to come? And if it's signs of things to come, do we need to make a small adjustment or do we need to make a, do we need to make a huge shift? And organizations don't make huge shifts well. Um, I know you and I have talked from time to time about DNA and an organization gets kind of a corporate DNA and switching on that DNA is really hard. It gets a business model that works. And a lot of organizations go out of business because they just can't switch to a different business model, an entirely different business model, or they can't switch to a completely different product line and they can't do it fast enough because they got DNA that's wired in one way and Making that shift is just really hard. It's kind of like getting a spinal column transplant. It's a hard thing to do. <laughs> um, I don't think the episode's going to be as grim as it feels like right now. It's like, so how do how do we write the boat? It's like, well, you can't. Yeah, so sell your, gran you're, sell you're, your grandmother's antiques. It, it's over. <laughs> well, you know, it, yeah, there are times when organizations do need to clean out the attics, but and to sell off some assets that aren't performing for them and buy them some time while they move into a different direction or just to a different strategy. Yeah. It's, you know, there's, uh, there's been quite a bit of research on how long it takes to implement a medium sized strategic change. And it's usually how you go, if you change how you go to market, 
you know, not talking about your product lines, not talking about whole new business, just talking about how you go to market. And uh, it, it's two and a half years before um, people are truly comfortable with that and it's clicking along and it feels like the new normal. Well, there's going to be a dip or two in there and that's going to freak, it's going to freak everybody out from time to time. Yeah, I, I do have to, um, I've definitely said several negative things about the company in the past. I do have to say that uh, the GM CEO that made the call to get rid of some lines right now that weren't doing that well, even though the company is doing well, uh, that is looking ahead and, not, and, and making tough decisions like this, uh, you know, where you're going to change the organization before it's absolutely desperate. Previous leadership of GM, this blows my mind, had uh, divisions that had not been profitable for decades. So Pontiac and Oldsmobile in particular, General Motors brands before they blew up in 2008 or so, 2007, 2008, yeah. uh, had not been profitable for literally decades and they're sitting there and it's like, well, it wasn't profitable in 1994 and it wasn't profitable in 2006, but who knows? Maybe we won't lose money this year because it's just that stasis thing. Like it just feels good. You know, there's somebody in the organization that really wants to hang on to their job or really wants to hang on to the way things are. And so they are going to fight tooth and nail, uh, even if and, they and, are well-intentioned and they wind up taking the whole thing basically down. <laughs> And the business model has always been, you know, one of the G, one of GM's big breakthroughs was to have multiple lines. I mean, Henry Ford um, answered somebody's question this way. Um, you can get the Model T in any color as long as it's black. <laughs> and so part of where GM really took over from Ford was they began to have different tiers. And so suddenly you got a Cadillac for one end and a Chevy on the other. Now today, um, there was so... Even, you know, even back in the, you know, I'm an old man, even back in the 90s, there was so little differentiation between them and try to save money and keep things going. Instead of getting rid of some of those lines, like seems so obvious now, let's get rid of Pontiac, let's get rid of Oldsmobile. Um, when you have to tell people it's not your father's Oldsmobile, it is your father's Oldsmobile. And possibly the favorite car I've ever owned was an Oldsmobile Delta 88, which was truly an it looked good on the outside. It was two-tone on the outside, and that baby just floated down the road. It was the exact opposite of responsive. It floated down the road like a bed on wheels. It was just a beautiful thing. It was like a sleep number bed on a chassis, and um, it, it, it was truly luxurious. And at the same time, it was definitely my father's Oldsmobile. <laughs> it had the same ride I grew up in in my father's Oldsmobile. And so when you got to tell people it's not that, you're done. Yeah. And, um, but it had been their model. And so to, so that what they did is they just started cannibalizing things by building three different lines on the same chassis and just changing some of the components. And it seemed like it would save money, but suddenly what you had was a, they were the same car. So literally they'd say, Oh, well, that's the same car. And Saturn began to do that. Um, so Saturn had some, you know, broke out and made some real sales and some real progress. And then all of a sudden it was, okay, the Saturn Aura and the Chevy Malibu, uh, basically the same car with a different name. And so things began to cannibalize themselves. So instead of making the hard decisions, they made cost saving decisions. And it's, as you know, in marketing, it's really hard to cost cut your way to marketing effectiveness. Yeah. Well, and let me say right now. I can think back, you know, right now, uh, you know, the, the business is nobody else full time, me and a, a team of very good freelancers throughout the country. Right. And 
uh, you know, eventually full-time, obviously is something I want to do, but right now it makes more sense to have a bunch of people who are flexible and can come in as I need them uh, as the business grows. So there is nobody else in the company I can point to except for myself. You know, I would say that especially the first year was me doing a lot of stumbling and a lot of not being able to cut things fast enough that I shouldn't have been messing around with uh, as far as like what it took out of my time versus what it returned to the business. And the most difficult thing being that the first couple of customers I had, uh, you know, two of the first customers I signed, I didn't set up well and I didn't kind of let, I didn't, enforce boundaries fast enough. Like they would call me on the weekends. Um, you know, I actually, I recently had a customer that was texting me at like 11 o'clock on a Friday night about a website thing. And I'm like, what, what do you do with your life? What, why is this coming up right now? Um, I should have looking back, had the courage to get rid of those immediately and had the confidence to know that I would pick up other work. Uh, you know, that I would have, have other clients come in and instead I kind of drug both those accounts out for way longer than I should have. Uh, and you know, right. And it cost me business because I couldn't pull the trigger. So I am not sitting here, you know, you and I both do some journalism, right? We both do some writing for publications and that type of thing. I'm not sitting here with my journalism hat going on, going, ha ha ha, look at these idiot, you know, CEOs or VPs or whatever that can't, that see the full um, iceberg sticking out of the water and still won't turn the Titanic. I'm sitting here and going, man, it is just one of the easiest temptations to fall into in business to the evil when you're miserable to kind of stay in the same spot. So it takes two and a half years to really turn this thing in an organization, in an organization, yeah. if you're doing a middle turn. Yeah. So let me ask, yeah, let me ask one question. About that. Nimble, there's, it's a different kind of game. Okay. I was going to say, so if you have like 12 people, can you go faster or not? If you have 12 people, it has to go faster or you're going to die. Um, one of the, you, you've heard this many times uh, as well as, you know, our listeners um, have heard it many times that, Hey, we're small and nimble. And, you can be so nimble that you don't have a business plan. Oh, that looks like a possible client. Oh, that looks like a possible customer. You don't have a business plan then. You don't have anything that's scalable. You don't have anything that's replicable. And that's why the um, um, things that talk about how to scale and how to, uh, uh, how to systematize are still one of the most popular um, uh, uh, approaches to growing small businesses because you got to get out of the, we'll take any customer anytime, any way, because it's a really expensive way to service them. Yeah. And when you get into it, when you get into a team of 12, the uh, you get in real trouble unless you can. Uh, and I was trying to think of the E-Myth. It's one of the reasons why the E-Myth is in a second edition and still sells and there's E-Myth coaching. It's good stuff for people who are wanting to, wanting to grow a, a you know, a, a smaller entrepreneurial business because that's a perennial challenge is to scale and, um, but small organizations can be flexible, have to be flexible, have to be nimble, and it's one of the ways they compete. They can give a level of service and a level of nimbleness that larger organizations, the larger organizations can't. You can you can come in contact with the person that runs the thing. Hopefully, you don't talk to them, you know, every weekend, but you can have more access. And so, it's one of the things that people buy um, over a middle-sized or a larger organization is, is that nimbleness and that approachability. Yeah. So I have not done this, <laughs> right? I've been in business long enough to have to make this kind of huge turn, but I've lived through positive and negative turns like this. And only hey, and I want to tell everyone, I didn't pick this topic. 
Seth picked this topic. I didn't pick this topic because I'm really good at seeing places where other people get stuck. I'm not that good at seeing places where I get stuck uh, until I've been stuck for a while and it becomes obvious or other people point it out to me or even my wife says to me, what is, what is going on? So um, the, uh, I wouldn't pick this topic because as Seth said, it's easy, it's hard. It's hard to see them. And then when you do see them, it's hard to change. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I would kind of classify myself after a year and a half of that, that I haven't just, I don't have enough roots or history as a company yet to uh, need to have made this kind of huge change. Right. Um, the E-Myth by the way is a, a book that I would highly, highly, highly recommend. Just found that one over Christmas. I uh, had okay. a, kind of an associate recommended to me and I wish that I would have read that back in uh, July, June, July, 2017, as I was building this thing. So I let you down, man. I should have mentioned it. Oh, <laughs> so let's, let's get into some, you know, some tactics and then we'll land the plane here. So you walk into the office tomorrow and you know that if you don't sell Pontiac and Oldsmobile, um, you, you're going to be in real trouble. Doesn't necessarily mean you're going to go to business. Uh, but there are companies that are a shadow of their former selves that are just kind of hanging around. Right. And they're drawing uh, down cash from everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you walk in, look, assuming you're not the senior leader, most people listening are not going to be a CEO of a mid-sized to large organization. How do you start getting the ball to move here? How do you do, how do you be Paul Revere and say the red coats are coming uh, and, and mean it and not chicken little, the sky is falling. Like how, how do you start to get some other people into this, in this mindset that. What a, what a great comparison. Cause chicken little, if you remember just freaked everybody out, nobody took her seriously. And uh, Paul Revere had a number of people who, uh, who followed him. Although, um, as an aside, uh, I, that was one of the great stories in Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point was how there were two people who were out warning folks. And one of them, um, transformed the world, Paul Revere and the other one, no one really paid much attention to. And, uh, um, so some people have more influence than others. That's just a fun story. If, uh, um, one of the best chapters in that whole book. Anyway, um, Paul Revere is a great example of that. How do you get people to actually respond to change? Let me ask you what you've observed, and let me start off with one thing I've observed. I've okay. observed that if you get that people develop quickly, develop a ignore button to sky is falling messages. It's kind of like goal setting. You run yeah. out new goals, and people are like, "Oh yeah, same ones as last year. Great, let's try them back out and talk about them again until this gets over." We into the gym. Uh, February's coming. Let's just keep talking about goals for a month and then we'll get busy on real work while everything gears up and, and we won't have to talk about these anymore. I think the same thing can happen to burning platforms. You've had your fourth manager in the last six years, seven years, and each one comes in and goes, wow, that's a problem. We got to create a burning platform. Well, after a while, the people who've been working there go, oh, this is a burning platform. And they're lighting it on fire themselves. And, um, um, now, I'm not saying that there aren't real problems you have in your organization that will kill you in three years if you don't address them. I guess what I'm saying is for a lot of people, you are manager 17 who has done a burning platform and pointed to things on fire, and everybody still has a job. It may not be doing as the company may be half of what it was before. Your organization may not be able to get donors. Um, your religious organization may be getting older every day, but it's still there. Yeah. You're still there. I'm still working. Yeah. 
Uh, and ain't no, burn, I, ain't no burning platform <laughs> in my office. Well, you know, if I, if I can use a negative uh, event here. So the pot, what I, what I saw with an organization that came through, and this is a great recession that came through it. And I don't think they really had any mass layoffs or anything. They survived. They didn't hire a lot of positions when people voluntarily left. They, yeah, they shrunk yeah. by attrition, but the first thing they did was get them together and say, Hey, we think we can survive this. We may not be able to, I mean, not like we're going to go to business, but we right. may, we may have layoffs. Right. And I, I think the, that that organization has gone through layoffs at other times. Uh, yeah. you know, however, uh, basically this is what's going on and we need your participation. The other organization I would have left. I had, I, I didn't want to basically, I was at the point where I didn't want to be there. I had turned down a couple of jobs looking for the perfect gig and then I got caught in a layoff and I'm like, guys, I, I would have been out of here. You wouldn't have had to bother with me if I just would have known, uh, that the, you know, a couple of, a, a couple of kind of effects of the previous CEO, uh, you know, a couple of products that, had failed to launch and it cost somewhere around $4 million had really, really damaged the organization. Uh, but nobody ever said anything in, in a lot of ways, like, you know, kind of new leadership had just taken over. I don't know exactly how they would have given us a heads up because it's hard to come in and do that burning platform thing. But the two things I saw were, you know, the ones that made it, painted more of a grim picture, the one that made it. And the one that didn't, I found out about the grim picture when I got pink slipped. Well, my friend, there are <laughs> um, there are a couple of ways of finding out how grim it is. And a pink slip gets people's attention, but then it also leaves them um, almost shell-shocked yeah. from the experience of it. And people are like, I cannot believe, how come they didn't tell us? And it takes a big hit in trust. Um, so let's say you come in and you're new to a team or you're a new leader. And uh, you get into things and you discover wow, this is not good. Um, I was, you know, I, I, I worked with an organization where um, they, they told their team, here's where we are. We are probably a year and a half away from having to shut down. I don't think we will, but that lets you know how serious things are. And so we're going to have to make some cuts that we never made before. And we're going to have to reorganize some things that people have told us they not only don't want to do, but would quit if we did. So we're going to have to take some jobs that people thought needed to be separate. We're going to have to put them together because we can't have this redundancies between product lines. And they, you know, basically, and they got some pushback. People said in an open forum, I don't think you're a liar, but I don't believe you because the people who have led us before would have told us. And he said, I don't know. I don't think they thought it was this bad. I thought they thought they could turn it around. But the point is, the direction we've been going is almost we're almost done completely yeah and that kind of it did most people were on board immediately they're like all right what do we do but a few people were like i, I can't i don't believe you it can't be this bad we would have known ahead of time and there's nothing you can do except lay it out exactly the way it is um in the in the case of missing a four million dollar piece in an organization that size uh, that, you, that you were working with seth um that's a big enough hit that Four million dollars is a big enough hit that people are going to lose their jobs. Yeah, we're down four million dollars, and um, okay, well, how many people do we have to cut to make that up? Yeah. Uh, so let's say that uh, <laughs> I, I don't. Let's say that everybody gets on board, right? 
Yeah, okay. Yeah, so let's say everybody gets on board. You actually start. You said this is two and a half years. I'm guessing uh, just that as you start to go through this, there's going to be a snapback thing where it's like, you know what? Okay, we did some stuff. We stuck with this for six months. And you know what? Now we are not going to die. So let's go back to the way things were. I'm not comfortable. Give me my soft, cushy seat back, metaphorically. I have been in love with this same woman for, uh, and married to her for 34 years. There have been times in 34 years where she has pointed out some things that she is rather frustrated with. And I will make changes for a good three to four weeks. And then when she no longer complains about them, I will slip back. And, um, you know, I, I do it a little more often. And she doesn't say anything because, you know, he's busy, he's tired, he's been good. And, you know, she doesn't say anything. So I think, oh, okay, well, good. We've got that. We've got that fixed. And then, you know, four months later, I'm back to about where we were. And she's like, what is wrong with you? Well, you didn't yell. When I started doing it again, I figured we'd made that adjustment. And um, I'm the one that's the doofus and ends up sliding back. And so my grandfather was a farmer. You know farm stuff more than I do. You lived it firsthand. Yeah. Um, but he said it this way. Um, how do sheep get lost? Sheep gets lost one bite at a time. And um, you know, hey, walk, walk, walk right over a cliff. I do the same thing in my marriage. One little, one little, I didn't hear anything on that one. And so easy to slip back. Hey, by the way, it's one of the reasons that it slips back is that managers begin to pay attention to other things. And the very best managers nip it in the bud. And so... Um, they see people wandering off and they say, whoa, 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 what are we doing? Um, I may be the best illustration of this is sales. We're in organizations behind. They work really hard on prospecting. They get their pipeline all filled up. And then they, they, go, they get busy closing the deals and doing the administration and nobody's doing prospecting. And then they're back into a bad quarter again. Yeah. And so it's kind of the classic thing of quit doing what made you successful. Uh, so this is, there's no magic bullet. There's just, human basically uh, put something on your wall that says, Hey, dummy, you're going to go to business. If you don't do these three things uh, that, that'll get into a little bit. Uh, I really, I really do have three very practical ideas as we land this plane. Okay. Yes. Uh, wait, because I, I think you're going to go on a positive note. Let me ask a question before you do that. Cause I want, I want to end on yeah. a, a better note. Okay. So with better the organization. Than, that, yeah. I, I want to, yes, I, I'm going to be negative, but I, I think this is important for some people's careers with the organization that I wound up, you know, getting caught in a reduction in force on. I should have quit about six weeks in, I think. Um, but I was really concerned on how that would look on a resume. Uh, you know, cause either six weeks is long enough that you look unemployed, uh, when I wasn't right. And, you know, it looks like something bad happened. Um, and it looks like you are unfaithful. Well, six weeks turned into, I stayed another year to get a promotion and then I stayed a little while to having done that promotion. Cause if you're applying for a job a week after promotion looks weird and then the timing was just bad. It, you know, when can you, when is a good time to exit? Like, I mean, you know, cause you, you've been around all these companies that do hiring. What's the worst black mark there? Is it leaving almost immediately or is it having a gap in employment uh, or is it getting, you know, caught in a reduction in force? This will sound ageist. But it depends on your life cycle. As you know, Seth, I'm refocusing on both generations and life cycle. And that's a life cycle thing more than it's a generational thing. 
if you are 10 years into the workplace, six weeks on your resume will probably make people wonder about you Um, in a pretty serious way. If you've got 30 years in, 25 years in, and you you have um, what are socially meets the norms, um, whatever that is currently, you know, because it's changed over the years, and then you get a six-weeker, there'll be people who won't look at you, but there'll be other people who look at the resume and go, something went on there, and they had the integrity or the courage to leave. Okay. And whereas if you're new, they're like, oh, one of those millenniums who isn't going to stay when they don't like stuff and uh, must not have got a Herman Middle Aeron chair as opposed to um, having a little, having the life cycle, having the, having the uh, um, kind of the years behind you to prove that out. So that really depends. If I would, I, I'd give two, I'd give two warnings. If you know it's going down, get out. After six weeks, if you know it's going down, get out. And because it may be a miserable thing and nothing makes you harder to hire than somebody that's so angry at their last job, they can't do an interview right. Yeah. And, um, um, and so if you're going to be filled with bitterness for three months because of how horrible the last six months was, get out of there. And that'll be more toxic than a six weeker. On the other hand, if you can just kind of roll with it, stop, drop and roll. I'm, not going to have, I'm going to have low expectations and realize that this is probably not going to be the most fun time to be here and have low expectations and, and do a good job and be kind to people and, and um, keep on for this for six months before I move along. Then, um, and you can put in your resume that the company did a reduction in force, the company, whatever. So there are ways to note that. So it looks like you're good and loyal and it wasn't you who did it. And so um, that if you can do that, then that's probably worth doing if you're younger in your career. Um, if you're, you know, if, if it's not miserable, I wouldn't, I personally wouldn't move in mo- in many industries. If you're in high tech or art or uh, in the arts or other things, um, being at some place for two or three years is a lifetime, but in you know, advertising a year is not at all uncommon for people yeah. to move from one spot to another. But, you know, in, um, in nonprofits or other organizations, you go less than three years and suddenly people are like, it definitely raises eyebrows. If you go less than three years, um, if you leave for promotion, not so much, but um, it definitely raises eyebrows. If you, if you pop around, doesn't kill your career in a three, three and a half percent unemployment rate, but it definitely raises eyebrows. And if we go into a recession, which a lot of us think we probably are, then it's not going to stay three and a half, four percent for long. And it will raise some eyebrows. Yeah. Um, okay. So you got three things here to go out on and then we'll, we'll close this thing out. Yeah. So, so you're an individual and you're stuck. And one of the most important things I think a person can do when they're stuck personally is to have a team. Um, Harvey McKay, I guess this is kind of a book name dropping kind of podcast, isn't it? Harvey McKay is an oldie and a goodie swim with the sharks without getting eaten alive. Still, a, still, a. um, um, a great book. He said it this way. You got to get yourself an old grizzly. You got, um, you find some, you find some people who are a committee of sanity and they're older than you. And they got a lot more business experience than you. And you don't have to agree with them and you don't have to do what they say because they probably don't understand where the market's going as much as you would as younger, as maybe a younger person or more connected generationally. But you get an old grizzly who looks at you and goes, no, that's dumb. That's just plain dumb. 
you find somebody who can tell you when you're stuck. And many of us have it in our personal lives. We have people who love us. Um, but a lot of times people just don't listen to people who love them. I did marriage counseling in a past life. And many of the marriages saw where they were going about nine months to four years before they got there. And the person just ignored it. They either didn't want to change, they didn't want to hear it, or just thought the other person was overreacting. And then they hit the same spot. You got to listen. And if you don't have people who will tell you stuff, you got to have people who will tell you stuff. Even if, like Harvey McKay says, you find a couple of grizzlies, old grizzlies, how's that for ages? Old grizzlies, or um, you get your kind of board of directors uh, for your own brand. Number two, if you're leading an organization, be really careful how much fire you add to the burning platform. A burning platform, we got to create a burning platform. No, what we have to do is get the facts to reasonable people. If you need to do a better job communicating the facts, then that's worth doing. If you're trying to create a fire because you need your people to move, 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 because that's going to help your career to show that you can turn this department around, then you just need to be honest with the motivation behind it and quit trying to be magic and find other ways to motivate folks than a burning platform or a crisis. You really aren't facing a crisis if you can't make a, if you can't make a good case for the external market changing or the leader, if you're an internal uh, group like finance or, or IT, that the uh, leadership has changed and they're going to start laying people off if we don't make some radical changes now. If you can't make a bur if you, you don't have a burning platform, if you have to manufacture fire, um, if you have to pump up the fire, you just need to tell the story better or you need to motivate a different way. Can, and, can I cut in there real quick? Yeah, yeah. Um, the times when I've heard, uh, you know, bad news like that delivered best, like the, the, the organization that made it through, uh, you know, it was really a calm meeting. It was. And I've had a lot of other people jump around and scream uh, about what it was. And th that was, and I, I, I can still remember the vocal inflection of the, basically the CEO of the organization. He said, I think we can make this through without, you know, mass layoffs, but it's going to in large part depend on you. And that was about as impassioned as it got. I mean, they, they just laid it out there. Uh, and then there were some people that absolutely lost their flipping minds and right. basically said, right. why don't you go murder all those people right now? And then we'll have more money. Um, you know, lay them off, cut them off. Uh, so yeah, that I saw the reasonable facts thing happen really, really well there. My, uh, my, my, <laughs> My maybe my favorite cartoon, Far Side cartoon. If you're old, remember those of all time. Showed a hunter's sight and two bears. One of them pointing at the other in the hunter's sight. Um, <laughs> but you see that in reorganizations or downsizing, kill them. Um, mm -hmm. The the last one, Seth. You uh, you already anticipated it. Is people will get moving if they're terrified, and often they'll give up. Once the terror is over, they realize it's, it's not a burning platform, it's burnt. They did such a good job scaring me that I'm, and they're so scared. They're panicked, and so I'm panicked, and I got to find someplace else to be. Or I'm just going to sit here and wait for the, I'm gonna wait for the fire to come. And um, um, you don't want that, but that's a very common reaction is to make it so bad that people are like, why bother? And calm, I'm calm, here are the facts. I think we can do this. 
I don't know that we can have everybody with us. Um, I know that it's going to be a lot. I know that's going to be a lot of demand on folks. I know we got to do things very differently. And I know people have been very successful are going to be really frustrated from time to time trying to make this shift in the way we sell or shift in the way we are delivering um, or uh, shift in um, hours. You know, for example, I was working with the dealership and they're like, we had a lot of pushback for our employees because they're like, hey, we've always been very family friendly. And now you want us to work on evenings and weekends. Well, that's right. That's when people want to bring in their car for last minute emergencies. We'll give you mornings off. Well, mornings off didn't help me with my kids. And so um, they're going to have people who say, well, th this is against our values when actually it's just against the practices we've had through the years. And, and you're the one that, that made those the values rather than the values themselves. And so you're going you're gonna to end up with that. And some people won't make the transition very easily. And so just being calm and kind of laying out the challenges that people are going to have. And it's going to be hard for some folks that have planned, you know, that have been heading literally. And uh, so we're going to need to wrap it. We're going to need, you're going to need to make some adjustments in your family. And I know and it may not be for everybody. And you just lay it out like that and anticipate the objections. And I've seen people walk through, uh, calm everybody down and show a calm confidence that, that makes people motivated for the long haul. Yeah, uh, that, this actually, I, I've quoted John Wooden a lot, um, but um, this isn't a quote, I suppose, but one of the things I admire about him uh, and leadership that I think translates really well to business is that once the game started, like he didn't, and he was the anti-Bobby Knight, he didn't throw chairs or something like that, right? Um, he He didn't even really get up out of his seat, like, you know, he gave some pointers and uh, he kept his head and that translated over onto the players as well. I also do want to point out you who are Mr. I prevent turnover guy just said, you know what, in this case, you're just going to have to lose the turnover, you know, some good people, some bad people. That's going to be the way it's going to be. There is my, one of my favorite phrases is good person, bad fit. And when you make a pretty significant turn in your business to wrap this thing up, there'll be some people who were, Great fit for the old business and not a good fit for the new business. Doesn't make them bad people. Um, most businesses wait too long till they're really angry about stuff. And then when they're angry, they find it easier to deal with those situations. Much, much better to uh, um, understand this is going to require a new fit. And if that isn't for you, you may need to go. It's one of the reasons why managers let the sheep get too far away. Little bite at a time, it's, well, they're good people. Well, they're good people. No, they're not as good of a fit as they were before. And you're letting them go back to the organization that was a good fit. And you need to have the conversation around, if you don't like it, that's, that's going to be tough for both of us. Yeah. Instead of, yeah, I just hate to be on their back all the time because they're such good people. They got an illness in their family. They've been here for 30 years. Um, I really like them. Or... Um, or our kids are married. That was one that I thought was most complicated. <laughs> okay. Well, we, we definitely don't have time to unpack that. Uh, hey, he's Hayden Shaw. He's helped over 30,000 managers over the course of his career. Um, you can check out his website to see all the, uh, you know, kind of big name companies that have been better off because Hayden is coming in and helps them. And uh, he can do the same thing for you. PeopleDrivenResults.com. My name is Seth Tower. Heard the company's digital profit farm. Uh, you probably want some more money and uh, I'm kind of into that. Websites email campaigns, social media ads, and actually podcasting just like this one. There's a whole bunch of ways to get more customers. You just got to have um, 
probably some help to actually get it done and you got to know what the heck to uh, do. And that's uh, what my company specializes in. Uh, once again, digitalprofitfarm.com. Hey, if you're catching this on Facebook or you catch the video, uh, go ahead and click on the link associated with the video because uh, the podcast is available on like 10 different platforms. So you can uh, stay up with us. Finally, we do have a Facebook group uh, where you can talk to other like-minded individuals and sometimes have a safe place to discuss some of these difficult things like, um, you know, what do I do with this employee who's good talent, bad fit? Uh, we will catch you next week. And there's actually going to be another part to this episode uh, where we look at an organization trying to stick to its goals, but isn't it uh, running around with its hair on fire. All right. Thank you so much for uh, joining us and we will catch you next week. Catch you next. <laughs>